The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Alex Ewell, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for our latest update on tech stocks. It's another busy time for tech with the NASDAQ rallying, CES having just wrapped up, and earnings around the corner again. I'm joined today by my colleague, Eric Savitz, Barron's Associate Editor, who covers tech for us from Silicon Valley. Hey, Eric. Hey, Alex. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, So we've had a rally for the NASDAQ for a change to start 2023. It's up almost 5% this year. Uh, I'm guessing uh, this means that all of tech's troubles are over, right? Yeah, happy days are here again. No, I think, you know, this is a rally that looks a lot like some of the ones we've had over the last year or so, where you got a little bit of optimism, mostly about the Fed um, and uh, rates uh, and, and stocks move higher. I wouldn't read too much into this from the long term for technology where we are, as you mentioned, heading into earnings season. I think earnings are going to be terrible. Um, you know, we're, we're still looking at uh, softening consumer demand, weaker uh, enterprise spending. It's all going to be a rough period, and I don't think it gets better uh, so fast. Okay. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, it's amazing the degree to which you look at what's happened to stocks to start the year. And it's really just been the inverse of 2022, right? I mean, that's no coincidence that a lot of the names that got hit most are rallying right now. I don't think that speaks a lot to fundamentals, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, we were just talking about how like Peloton is up 30% or something like that year to date. There's been a huge rally in um, uh, Warner Brothers Discover, which Mm -hmm. was a terrible stock last year. So there's a little bit of bottom fishing going on. Uh, but I, and you know, I think what we saw the last year too is in some of these very uh, sharp rallies, those were the stocks that rallied the most, the things that were down a lot. Yeah. Um, so again, I think it's just, uh, you know, this will go on for maybe a little while longer. But at some time, to- you know, at some point, I think starting with earnings, which really start, uh, we get a little bit next week. Netflix reports next week, yep. but then the most of the big tech ones are in the the subsequent two weeks or three weeks, and. I think it's going to be a rough period. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess in terms of the stocks that you see rallying, I mean, I think I would feel a little better about things personally if it was more of a sustained big tech rally, right? As opposed to sort of the smaller names. Yeah. So if you saw big moves by, you know, Apple and Microsoft and Amazon. Over a long uh, period. Yeah, over a sustained period, then you might think something was getting better. Okay. Uh, but I don't think we're there yet. Okay. All right. So let's get into then some specifics on some of the problems because we got um, some reminders actually this morning, uh, in fact, one of those being Logitech, which um, is down, what, almost 20% today? Yeah, it's down about 15 or 20%. And, you know, Logitech, of course, makes uh, peripherals for PCs and gamers. So they make uh, mice and keyboards and webcam, uh, like web uh, web cameras and microphones and all the kinds of things that you might use um, if you're trying to connect online. They don't make computers themselves, but they make everything else you might need to uh, to use your PC at home or in the office. They had a huge uh, growth spurt during the pandemic for mm-hmm. all the reasons we all would suspect, right? We're all at home. 
we want a better web camera, we want a better microphone, all those kinds of things. Yep. Um, they this morning uh, uh, pre-announced, they, they warned that their uh, earnings, which are coming up in two weeks, uh, would be below uh, expectations, and they reduced their full-year revenue guidance pretty substantially. Now, Logitech is a slightly unusual company. They're actually headquartered in Switzerland. They have a March fiscal year, but they they, they reduced their uh, their outlook for the March fiscal year by like 10 percentage points. So they're really getting hit hard, and they specifically called out um, uh, slowing enterprise spend. Hmm. And, you know, they do a lot of consumer products, but they do sell some things into the enterprise uh, that feels alarming. Like, are we talking about like conference systems and stuff like that? Yeah, some of it is web conferencing systems. Okay. You know, people use mice and uh, yeah, keyboards okay. and all that stuff in the office, and uh, and it's it, the demand is falling off. Okay. Okay. So now we have. You have to remember this follows a day or two um, some new data on PC sales in the fourth quarter from the major. Uh, market research firms that track this stuff from IDG and Gartner. Mm-hmm. They both showed basically the same thing. They're always not always in the same. Sometimes the numbers are very little. This particular quarter, they both showed like twenty eight percent decline in uh, year over year in uh, Q four PC sales. That's really bad. That's really really bad. And yeah. we all knew that PC sales were soft. Q three PC sales were down like fifteen percent. Um, so twenty eight percent, even worse. Yeah. And what was particularly striking about that as I looked at the numbers, and they were bad for all the major players. So, the, you know, I, IDG and uh, Gartner, uh, in addition to giving the cumulative total, uh, will give some data on how each of the individual players are doing. And from an investor point of view, the ones I, I think are the most interesting are Dell, HP, and Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, what was interesting is that in recent quarters, the numbers were worse for HP than for Dell. And for an obvious reason, HP is much more exposed to consumer PCs, where Dell is more exposed to enterprise PCs. They okay. both sell both, but okay. in the yeah. proportions are different. Yep. And in this quarter, Dell's numbers were worse. And that suggests, uh, and you can see it in Dell shares, which have been weak the last two days. It, you, it suggests that there's been a pickup or, I don't know, acceleration of cost reductions, a budget tightening. Uh, by companies the, buying technology, the enterprise. So, yeah. so the weakness has either shifted or perhaps the better word is expanded from the consumer into the enterprise. Yeah, that's and, that's the implication, right? And I think that's that's worrisome from the degree that we had seen, or for a while in 2022, people saw the enterprise as kind of this bulwark of of, of support for uh, for spending, right? In the in the tech space. Yeah, and then even on the PC side, there was some expectation that as people went back to the office, hmm. that people who had office PCs uh, that were sitting there, kind of you know, moldering for two years. Uh, we're going to be behind, and they might you might see a pickup in replacement yeah, cycle yeah. for some of that P, those PCs. But you know, obviously, we're seeing lots of companies tighten their belts, reduce staffing. You know, if you you, re, you lay off staff, you're likely to uh, buy fewer PCs. Yeah, um, right. So you have less people. You don't need as many PCs. It's fascinating because it just feels like then one more way in which we're getting this reopening math wrong. Our, our, a lot of our assumptions around the reopening and and who it would help hasn't whether it's retailers or tech or it hasn't played out the way anyone's expected. It sounds like maybe people are just 
got laptops during the pandemic from work and now they're just still using the same laptops. Yeah. So one of the things that Gartner pointed out is that um, they expect that uh, the average uh, life cycle of an enterprise PC is lengthening. Hmm. So uh, so that's one way of addressing the issue is instead of replacing I'll make up some numbers. Instead of replacing PCs every three years, you replace them every four years. Yeah. Well, and if you do that, um, you know, well, that's just going to impact PC sales. And so um, uh, Gartner doesn't think we're going to see any rebound before 2024. Um, and, you know, it could go longer. Like, it just depends on how, what develops in terms of recession. Do yeah. we actually get a recession? How bad is it? Right. How broad is it? But for the moment, um, it is ominous in the near term for anyone who touched the PC space. So, and, and, and I just want to, some folks might be saying to themselves, well, but PCs are so, you know, 2010, aren't they? <laughs> Can you put in context, I mean, PCs, though, still matter. They still matter for chip, sure. chip companies, right? I mean, it's still a big part of the business. Yeah, it matters for Microsoft, of course, which makes Windows, um, among other things. It matters for Intel and for AMD and for NVIDIA and for Western Digital and for Micron, like all these semiconductor companies, it's still a big and market yeah. and for the software companies and for other peripheral companies it has ripples and i think the other important thing particularly when you're talking about a slowdown in enterprise pc purchases it implies um that maybe they're cutting down on purchases of other things which may go well beyond pcs mm -hmm. and uh we're going to see some of that when we get microsoft's results for example um, and then, you know, later um, other players in enterprise technology okay. beyond PCs. Okay. All right. Very good. All right. Well, let's um, let's go on to another subject, which could be a big deal or which should still be important in 2023, which is regulation. Um, the climate, of course, has changed in the last uh, six months around tech regulation, because as we've been watching, uh, Congress has, has changed. The makeup of Congress has changed. We now have divided government. Um, that means that um, it's unlikely to see major legislation on really any topic in the coming months. Um, and even though there's some bipartisan consensus around tech regulation, it's hard to see uh, Congress agreeing uh, on that topic. So if, if legislation is off the table, what should we still be thinking about with regard to tech regulation? I know you've done some thinking on this and, and you're about to um, to write a sneak, column on sneak this. Preview. It's a sneak preview. Yeah. Yeah. So uh so, yeah, so the, 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 it certainly seems to be the case that in a divided Congress, it's going to be very difficult to get legislation through on tech regulation or much of anything else. Yeah, yeah. Right. So uh, so people who think uh, uh, who, who are you know, people in the tech industry or would be happy to see that they would happy. They would happily have no new tech regulation ever, ever. Mm -hmm. However, um, there's lots of other uh, regulatory and. Uh, legal and uh, uh, and other kinds of risk uh, in this area that you need to keep an eye on. Um, so let me throw out a few. Uh, so one, for example, it comes from the FTC. Uh, we have in, in the Federal Trade Commission, uh, we have a chair, uh, Lena Khan, who is extremely aggressive about uh, finding ways to try and regulate tech. She's done a few things to date, but hasn't really been as aggressive as some people thought she would be mm -hmm. when first she was appointed a couple of years ago. Right. Um, the FTC's budget has increased this year, and there's some suspicion that she's going to take a more aggressive tone. Um, I think one, for example, there's some suspicion that uh, this is the year that the FTC comes after Amazon, um, in particular on issues like preferencing their own products in product search on their uh, 
on their uh, in the Amazon store. Which I, I just want to point out. There was a op-ed written by Joe Biden um, yes. in the Wall Street Journal. I believe that published at least online yesterday. One of the things he calls out is that preferencing of, of platforms. Right. So that's just, you know, he, he, he admits he cannot do that much without Congress, but there are certain things under their control through various, uh, you know, uh, executive agencies. And, and this is one yes, of them. That's right. And then there's a couple of other things you might see from the FTC there. Uh, they're going to at some point weigh in on Amazon's proposed acquisition of iRobot, which makes the Roomba vacuum cleaner robots. Okay. Not the biggest deal, uh, but, uh, you know, when the, the concern is as your little Roomba is roaming around your house, it's collecting information oh, about your house. Okay. Uh, uh, it's a good thing. It's topographical, not a, topographical information. Um, <laughs> I guess information on, uh, you know, it, it, that when combined with other information that yes. Amazon has about you, gives them more information. Okay. Uh, it, so there's some concern that they might actually try and oppose that deal. Um, so there's some other things going on. There's going to be some, uh, uh, they're likely to promulgate some new rules on privacy and the use of, um, by tech companies um, in 2023. So there's a bunch of stuff happening at the FTC. Now there's a, there's some other problems that are, that are gonna come up, some other issues that are gonna come up. One that is super interesting to me is later this year, so now we're we're rolling uh, the calendar out to like next fall, okay. it's coming fall, uh, we're, we're going to get uh, the, the, a trial in this case, uh, US uh, v. Google, which is a case in which the Justice Department is trying to make the case that Google is monopolizing the search industry, uh, the web search industry. Uh, and uh, at, at particular issue there is Google's relationship with Apple. So, you know, Google pays a substantial amount of money. Now, we don't actually know what the number is. The suspicion is it's somewhere north of $10 billion, like a lot of money every yeah, year, yeah. for the right to be the primary search engine on um, Macs and on uh, iPhones and other Apple devices. Now, uh, and then in return, Apple sends all this traffic to Google. By some estimates, I think the government estimates it's at least half of Google's traffic comes from Apple devices. Yeah. So, uh, so if in this case, if if the government is able to prove uh, or 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 win the case, uh, there's real risk to that relationship. It has ramifications for for obviously for Google and for Apple. It could be a boon for Microsoft, which with Bing is the primary. Uh, primary competitor in search is a really interesting case that will unfold uh, later this year. Yeah, that's probably not getting, I mean, I imagine we'll be paying attention we to it. We will pay it, more it, attention. It, right now, it's not top of mind. And yes. like your point is it, it should be or, yes. or it will be. Yeah. So now let's talk about one that's going to happen a little sooner. Uh, the Supreme Court in February is going to have two days of hearings on a pair of cases that touch on Section 230. Uh, now, Section 230 is a um, a rule, a uh, government uh, rule that uh, basically protects social media companies, other internet companies from, from being the subject of litigation over content uh, posted by their users. Um, it also protects those companies from, uh, on, the, on the flip side, from um, deciding to take content down mm -hmm. uh, if they so, if they, if they want to do that if, uh, for whatever reason. And uh, so there are, there's, a, there's been a lot of uh, litigation about this. The, the two cases that the Supreme Court is going to look at in February involve uh, postings by ISIS, uh, the, the terrorist group ISIS, 
uh, that uh, apparently attracted more ISIS members. They've been sued in several different situations, or the the, the social media companies have been sued, uh, alleging that they, in effect, contributed to the death of um, of non-combatants. Um, it's a very interesting question um, about what, and, and there is some potential that the court uh, will narrow the scope of Section 230. And if they do that, that has huge ramifications for the social media companies. So I would keep an eye okay. on that one. All right. So plenty still happening, even, a divi- even with a divided Congress. Maybe, you know, we didn't get much um, on the regulatory front when we had uh, democratic control of Congress. So it will be interesting um, if this becomes the bigger year that we remember. Yeah. So I'll throw out just one more quickly yeah. before okay, we move on. Um, there was a uh, an ongoing saga in, uh, in my home state in California over uh, the regulation of gig workers. And you might remember there was a California, the California legislature passed a rule that said uh, gig drivers for Uber and Lyft and DoorDash should be classified as employees and not as contractors. Then those companies uh, uh, backed a ballot proposition called Prop 22 that would basically exempt them from that law. They won. Uh, and then the proposition was declared unconstitutional. So that situation is also going to trial this year. Uh, now, it may be a little while before you get final resolution. It's a California appeals court case. It could get appealed by whoever wins to the California uh, Supreme Court. But there is still risk uh, that people don't, you know, don't forget about this, that these companies could find themselves with substantial additional driver costs if they get put in a position where they have to pay payroll tax and they have to yeah. have insurance and other services so, to the drivers. So, okay. And so all these things you've laid out, I just think it's important to note, these are not on the margin kind of things like fines. I mean, all three, I think of these examples are like material, potentially business changing impacts. Oh yeah. Country. And I would, I would be remiss not to very quickly mention that the other thing that is, it continues to be in the news, of course, is debate over a potential ban of TikTok. Yeah. That, uh, if that were to happen and, you know, it's hard to tell what's going to happen there. Um, but if there was a TikTok ban, um, that would be very good news for uh, the likes of YouTube and Meta yep. uh, who are trying to compete with them. So we'll see how that plays out. OK. All right. So um, let's move on to um, looking back at last week. You yep. spent the week in Las Vegas at CES. Uh, it was a some sort of special CES because it was the first kind of full CES since the pandemic. Um, and you, you wrote a lot from there. You interviewed a lot of people. You saw a lot of things. Um, give me, I, I, you wrote a column on this and a few of the things that interest me. Well, and maybe give me the general vibe on sort sure. of innovation. Sure. So, uh, I'd say a couple of things. So first of all, yeah, this was the first real CES in three years. So there was one in January of 2020, uh, which, uh, some would argue was the first great super spreader event. Well, uh, I can't prove that, but we'll see. Oh, uh, 20, yeah. the, the following year in 21, it was all virtual in 22. Uh, there was a much smaller than average, uh, show the average, uh, you know, pre pre pandemic, you know, you'd re- routinely draw like 170 or 180,000 people to Vegas for CES last year. It was like 40,000 this year. We were back over a hundred thousand. Uh, when I talked to, uh, wrote a preview for this sh- about the show, uh, they were looking for, 100,000. Uh, they actually are now saying that it was 115,000, that they out uh, they did better than expected. The mood of the show was pretty upbeat. People were excited to be back at CES. Um, it wasn't quite as uh, insanely crowded as uh, some previous years, but it was um, it was a uh, 
uh, it, it, it had a good feel. It felt like people were happy to be there. Now, I will say uh, that in terms of like groundbreaking technology, it was a little light. Uh, so <laughs> right. I don't think, you know, you have to remember CES, which has been going on since the late 1960s, is the place where people introduced like the VCR and like the DVD player and like the Xbox and like all sorts of other 3D TVs. 3D, well, imagine. some of them weren't better than others, right? <laughs> okay. um, 3D TVs were big for a while. So like, but lots of stuff, OLED TVs, flat screen TVs, giant TVs, they get bigger every year, thinner and thinner TVs. Um, lots of that stuff. Now, I'd say the biggest area of innovation this year was around cars. So ironically, CES, uh, which once stood for the Consumer Electronics Show, they don't actually use that anymore for some reason. To me, it's it was like the car electronics show. Yeah. The C has been replaced yeah. by car. Nice. And uh, in one of the largest sections of the show floor, it was just a sea of vehicles. It was buses and uh, electric cars and autonomous cars and scooters and motorcycles and like every kind of vehicle you could possibly imagine. Um, and I think that there is a sense and for good reason that this is a huge opportunity for technology. It's relatively early. EVs have reached sort of the mainstream. Mm -hmm. I think it can be about 10 percent of the market now. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little early still on autonomous driving. Uh, but but there's a but every player was involved. They had there were keynotes from automakers. There were, um, you know, all of the semiconductor players that addressed this market were there. And there is a sense that we are slowly but surely making progress on all these things. Now, I think one thing that is true that is still uh, that has gone much slower than anybody had anticipated, say, five years ago. There aren't a lot of autonomous cars on the road. You can get robo taxis. There are a few of them in San Francisco and in Phoenix. Um, and there are some people doing like experiments with autonomously driven trucks and things like that. It's still a little early, but in terms of EVs and in what's what's known in the uh, uh, in in the auto industry is ADAS, which is assisted driving. So for things like cars that park themselves or keep you in the lane or you know maybe jolt you awake as you seem to be dozing off, things like that. That's all going to happen. Yeah, and it's it's all is is almost is inevitably going to happen in the next few years. Autonomous might take a long take longer, but that is where the most interesting technology was. Yeah, that's, yes. And I just think, I mean, the battle between tech companies and automakers is going to be a fascinating one to watch. Super sure. interesting, because yeah. you know, when you were among the people who were who were playing in this, right, are like Qualcomm and Nvidia and ARM, like all the big chip companies. Apple, no, Apple's not at CES. To be they, clear, they, um, I never have, or haven't been they, in years. They haven't been in years yeah. and really involved there. But uh, but Apple. Um, uh, is trying to make a big play for the cockpit experience, you know. Mm -hmm. So, that, uh, so you know, they, you really have several different technology trends at once. One is revolutionizing the experience inside the car, right? Yeah. So instead of having, you know, think about it, a Tesla, you have like a nice big screen in the middle of the, uh, in the middle of the dash. That's the only thing you have actually is that. Yeah. Um, yep. But yep. now imagine like the whole front of your car is one continuous screen. That's kind of the Apple vision, and it's yep. also the vision that. Qualcomm has and some other players. So, um, so you have that, you have the EV part, then you have the autonomous driving part. It's all being integrated. Qualcomm announced a chip that does both the entertainment and driving pieces on the same chip, which maybe might scare some people, but they think it's all, you know, that it, they've got uh, redundancy and that kind of thing. So there's, there's uh, it's, it's going to be a fascinating battle. Um, this It's going to be the main thing at CES for, uh, for years to come, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um... Very interesting. I want to I want to 
maybe talk about another story you wrote from CS because you interviewed at Bastion, the CEO of Delta. Yep. Uh, maybe I'll push back on this one a little bit because they're very excited. Uh, they're at CS too, an airline yep. company. Interesting. He was a keynoter. Yep. He was a keynoter. You see a pattern here, right? Car makers, mm -hmm. uh, airlines. Um, so he talked about, and they, uh, Delta's about to roll out, as you wrote about, free Wi-Fi on all of its flights across the U.S., at least, uh, I think, starting next month. Yeah, so U.S. will start in February and then uh, internationally and in regional routes, the local, uh, uh, shorter local okay. routes on smaller planes starting next year. So this is a nice intersection of tech, real life, because... Yep. I'm going to be sort of the real, I'm going I'm to speak up on behalf of the real <laughs> lifers out there because I've used Wi-Fi in the plane before when I've had to pay $20, $30, $40 and right. fortunately can usually expense it if I'm traveling for work. It does not work very well. So I do not understand how Delta is now going to give it away for free to everyone. Is it actually going to work? Yeah. So here's the thing. So first of all, Google changed providers. Uh, I'm sorry, Google. Delta changed providers. Uh, they originally were using GoGo, which is a service yep. that I suspect everyone uh, listening to this is familiar with. Yep. They're now using service from a different provider, a company called Viasat, which has a network of satellites. Uh, and uh, and the connection through Viasat is, at least they say, is faster and more reliable. Now, Delta's actually been testing this for a while. So, like, if you fly Delta now, mm -hmm. um, I'm flying Delta this afternoon, in fact. Um, if you fly Delta now, you can get uh, high-speed internet access for $5 per flight. Now, the $5, as you know, Alex, is way less than most of the airlines charge. Yep. It's kind of a nuisance fee. They're just doing it as part of this test of this process. And they swear, Ed Bastian swears, that you could have every single person on the plane uh, logged in at the same time and that the, the speed won't be impaired. Now, to your point, and, and Bastian makes this point, on GoGo, like the reason that a lot of the other airlines charge so much is that their speed slows down with increased usage. Okay. And so they don't want everyone on it because then it'll be a bad experience for everyone. Right, right. Now that's a very perverse business model, yeah. um, actually. But but Bastion doesn't think that's going to be an issue. We'll see. I mean, I will note that I did happen to fly, flew, uh, I flew to New York on Delta a few days ago and uh, uh, and use the service uh, was paying the five dollars yeah. i didn't get any special uh, preference and i was able not only to connect pretty reliably i wrote stories including the one about delta <laughs> um and uh and uh was able to um uh stream uh netflix on the plane uh, which a lot of services won't even let you do wow yeah uh, so it's pretty good now i think you might ask the question like well why why is delta doing this uh, and by the way, they say they've spent like a billion dollars so far to retrofit the planes to do this. Yeah, there's a few reasons. One is to use the service uh, when it's free, you're going to have to authenticate with um, a Delta Sky Miles account. Got it. Makes sense. Uh, so okay. they will that will encourage you to uh, sign up for Sky Miles, which, you know, like other uh, frequent flyer plans will, you know, encourage you to use Delta more. There are also, they also have some sponsors. So some of this, there, there's some sponsored content from people like um, the New York Times and Paramount Plus and a few others that are paying them some money for the right to do that. T-Mobile is a sponsor. Ask them about that. I'm not sure why T-Mobile would get involved, but T-Mobile sees it a way to cross sell yeah. service. So, um, and, and uh, you know, Delta uh, tries to position itself as a premier, like a premium brand. Yeah. And, We'll see if it works, okay. um, but he's pretty excited about it. And uh, certainly at even at $5 a month, uh, $5 a flight, it works Yeah, uh, great. Right. We'll see when everybody's on the same time. 
All right. All right. Good. Um, I want to remind everyone to uh, submit questions. Uh, I mean, we're already well into our uh, to our time, but we're going to try to answer some. Um, yep. And so ask a few. And, and actually, I'm going to jump to to them now. Um, so uh, Marshall asked a question, and uh, this might be up your alley, Eric. Thoughts on Palantir? Uh, it's a company with distinctive product offerings, a quirky CEO and good growth. But it remains um, a punching bag, he says. Uh, Give us some thoughts on Palantir, just quick, maybe 30, 40 seconds. Sure. So, you know, Palantir does software uh, to do analytics on very large data sets. Um, they, uh, about a, a substantial chunk of their business historically has been from governments, particularly the U.S. government, and in particular the military. Uh, they also serve commercial businesses. They do have a quirky CEO, um, you know, uh, uh, and, and, you know, they have their roots uh, it was co-founded by Peter Thiel, so it's been kind of a controversial company. They're growing nicely, but there are two issues, I think. One is the stock is not that cheap. Like if you look at it on a price-to-sales basis, it's trading about seven or eight times sales. That, in this environment, that's not a bargain necessarily. And the other thing is they kind of alienated some investors because they did this program where they invested in a whole bunch of SPACs, mm -hmm. uh, of companies that were going public via SPAC. Um, and in return, those companies were committing to return some of that capital in the form of contracts with Palantir uh, for business. Um, a lot of those deals have uh, have been not so good. So they've stopped doing this, um, but it's so a little they were, bit of they a They were effectively up. investors in these SPACs. Like and, a whole bunch of them, okay. several and dozen of them. As we know, most SPACs have declined in value. That has not helped. Yes, and at least one or two of them have actually failed entirely okay. of deals that they invested in. And so the street just has never gotten comfortable with this, and it looks like they're trying too hard. So there's some concern about the long-term growth rate there. Okay. I find them a fascinating company. They don't have a lot of direct competition. Yep. Um, okay. Uh, but, you know, I... I, I uh, uh, I think they've got to prove they can grow in that 30% plus range okay. from here. Okay. All right. Um, a few more. Myron um, asks about Microsoft, specifically the short-term prospects for Microsoft. So I think the short-term part of that question is maybe an interesting one. Yeah. So I think there's at least two questions to really focus on Microsoft. I, I, I want to be clear, like long-term, Microsoft is a fantastically positioned company. Almost no one in software is better positioned than Microsoft, but they have... Two issues near term. One we talked about earlier, PC exposure. The PC market is in tatters. You know, they still sell Windows. Mm -hmm. um, they've said last quarter that the, the outlook was pretty uh, going to be kind of tough in the December quarter for Windows. But based on these PC numbers, you wonder if it's going to be even worse than they thought. We'll see when they report earnings. I think the other wild card here is the cloud. Mm -hmm. So I've been very bullish, Alex, as you know, about the opportunity in the cloud. But in the short run, uh, like certainly in, in when we saw September quarter numbers from both Microsoft and from Amazon, uh, they were growing a little more slowly than the street had expected. If, if enterprises are cutting spending, um, uh, and you know you have to remember, by the way, that these companies, Azure, AWS, other players in the cloud, they have consumption-driven businesses. It's meaning like if you're a customer, you can dial down how much you use. Um, and I, I think there's some risk that Again, in the December quarter, that you have uh, weaker than expected cloud, cloud consumption right. numbers, and that would be bad for Microsoft's results. So, I, and, and I, probably not great for Amazon. And not great for Amazon. Okay. Either. So, I think that that is a key question going to December quarter. What we see in the cloud. Okay. And you would draw a line. I think it sounds like from this uh, the signals we're getting from the PC market 
may be into the cloud. They're very different businesses, but, but right because would... again, it comes down to this enterprise spending right. question. Okay. okay. They're not going to, you know. So now there is an argument, I suppose, that says, well, we're going to protect the cloud part. But I think what we've seen in the last couple of quarters is that the cloud, which was viewed as sort of almost inviolate, like that it was going to be the last thing you would cut, mm -hmm. um, was is at risk. And you see a similar pattern. Uh, you've seen a similar pattern with uh, security software where you would think like, well, that's not a thing you want to cut. You don't want to want to stop spending on or slow your spending on security. That seems risky. But even in security, um, you know, I talked at CES to George Kurtz, who's the CEO of CrowdStrike. And it's one of the things he mentioned was where we're resilient. We have more resiliency than some other areas, but we're not immune to recession. Yeah, got it. Belt tightening just goes across the board, it yeah. sounds like. Um, okay. So uh, there are a lot of other things I want to talk about. Um, uh, we have time for maybe a few more things. Sure. Uh, we talked a little bit about the innovation that we <laughs> saw at, at CES. A lot of the innovation, um, at least from an investing point of view, takes place in private markets still outside right. of our day-to-day -day view. Right? Sure. We don't know all that much about what's happening in private markets day-to-day, -day, but we do get hints um, every now and then on what valuations in private markets look like. You just wrote actually about uh, a few things on this. So give us a sense of what's happening in private markets right now, and then maybe we can even tie it to the IPO market, right? Sure. So there's uh, there's some data points about what's happening in the venture capital world. I mean, the venture capital world had a rough 2022. There's just no way around it. Um, and there's, uh, now you don't get, it's not the stock market. There's no, like, you can't like look up the index and see what happened, right? But there's lots of hints. So one hint, for example, which I wrote about a few weeks ago, is the activity in the secondary market. So uh, so basically, like if you invest in a venture capital business, there are ways that you can trade those uh, interests. It's a lot. Uh, uh, there's a lot more friction. Yep. It's not a. It's not nearly as fluid a market. But you can get some. You can do it if you want to. Sometimes it's employees. Sometimes companies make it easier. Or something. Right. Um, if you uh, uh, if you talk to people who who maintain those secondary markets, what we're finding is that um, transactions are happening at about fifty percent below the last announced round, right? So now that's that's kind of consistent with what we were seeing in high growth technology last yeah, year, sure. right? If you think about a lot of these are cloud businesses, like it's not that different than what we were seeing from some of the, uh, some of the large cap tech. So big fall off in valuation. And then the other one problem is, and this, uh, this came out this week in some data from PitchBook, which is a firm that tracks the venture capital industry. Um, exits right measured by dollars and so we count exits we're talking about ipos and acquisitions of venture capital businesses actually fell like 90 percent last year because there was basically no ipo market there was some m a activity but not nearly what there has been in previous years um i think a little bit actually goes of the credit for that comes uh, uh from the administration we talk about like a kind of crackdown on m a oh, that, that yeah. is a contributing factor too so you can't get out meanwhile the venture capital players who manage money, now they try and have a very long-term view, right? They're going to be doing this for a long time. So they continue to actually raise money. So they're raising more money. Uh, they're, they're, they can't get out. And, um, and then the activity level, the number, the, the, the level of deal activity, investments into venture capital um, funded businesses has declined. So what you end up with is the money is piling up to the ceiling. There's at least 300 billion in what the, the industry describes as dry powder, basically money sitting on the sidelines. Um, I think the recipe is for a pretty rough period going into 23, unless we get some 
reopening the IPO market, and I don't see that anytime soon. So if I'm looking for a silver lining there, um, if we do get true innovation, and if you believe in venture capital being a good allocator of funds toward real innovation, right. there is a lot of money on the sidelines waiting to invest in they are waiting. new innovation. Yes. Okay. Now, I would note, by the way, one thing that's interesting and, and, and kind of logical is the valuations for non for pre-IPO companies has come down the most for the ones that are closest to the public market. Hmm. So late stage uh, companies, Stripe this week, reduced their valuation. You're seeing a lot of that kind of thing happening. Yeah. Um, if you go to the other end of the scale, like two guys in the garage uh, starting a new business, seed capital, that kind of stuff, um, angel investing, the valuations there haven't changed that much. Yeah. Because those companies are five, 10 years away from any kind of real exit, even right. if they ever have one. Okay. And so, you know, that's way beyond the scope of like, are we going to have a recession? Sure. In the so, so the reminder then is that... Um, we are still bullish or, or the world, the country, Silicon Valley is still bullish long-term on innovation, but they are worried about the next year. The yeah, next and I'll give you one other data point along those lines, which uh, uh, which I wrote about this week. There was some data about uh, uh, U.S. patents issuance and filings yes, yeah. in 2022 that came out. And uh, there was a little bit of a slowdown in patent issuance, which I think was in part related to the pandemic and slower processing by the U.S. Patent Office. But patent applications were actually at an all-time high. So people are still patenting technology. There's people are still innovating. We haven't like run out of things to invent. Yeah. Um, and I know, by the way, the biggest area, the biggest growth area was something we talked about before, which is autonomous uh, vehicles. Uh, there's huge innovation going on. You know, it, it's not like the end of technology or something. Yeah. Uh, but some of this stuff is going to take a long time to. Okay. Okay, and 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 we'll have to be dealing with financial markets uh, as an obstacle probably for a while longer. We will, a little while. yeah. All right. Well, I think that's actually um, all the time we have. Uh, we will have to do this again soon. But thank you so much, Eric, for being thank here. You. This was fun. Uh, please join us again tomorrow. Reshma Kapadia, uh, our colleague, associate editor of Barron's, will be talking with Laura Garretts, who's head of Rondor Global Advisors, on whether China's economy and market has turned a corner as the authorities there lift their zero COVID policy and try to revive growth. Thanks for listening. Stay well and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.